I knew even at that age, if I educated my mind, I could educate my future. Problem was, as weeks and months went by, I kept falling more and more into the wall of invisibility. No one saw me. No one acknowledged me. No one called on me. No one looked at me. See, I realized at that moment that I wasn't part of a community, that I really wasn't anything, that I was truly disposable, just like the trash bag, that I was a disposable child and nobody cared. No one gave a shit about me or what happened to me. Hello, damn givers. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show where I chat with people who saw something wrong in the world and gave a damn about it. I truly, truly, truly hope today's conversation will help you give more dams than ever before. Friends, this is a big one. This is a big one, y'all. Not big in the sense that my guest is mega famous because you've most likely never heard of my guest before. Unless, of course, you've seen him on the most viral video in Upworthy history or being awarded a CNN Heroes Award or maybe on Ellen with his husband, Reese, or on Apple's new documentary directed by Bryce Dallas Howard called Dads. But if you haven't seen him on any of those platforms, you are about to get to know him. The real reason this is a big one is because your life is about to be changed. I don't say that flippantly. I don't say that lightly. You're about to be moved and inspired in such a tremendous way. I guarantee this with a 100% money back guarantee. I promise this is going to be an incredible time for you to listen and learn and be inspired. I've done over 150 episodes on this Let's Give a Damn podcast and I've never had someone tell their story in a more beautiful and compelling manner. So who is this mystery guest? My guest today is Rob Shear, founder of Comfort Cases. He and his husband, Reese, have five children that have been adopted out of the foster care system. In fact, Rob grew up in a very abusive and dangerous home and was eventually placed in the foster care system himself. His story of resilience and grit and perseverance that you're about to hear is truly incredible. I was moved to tears multiple times during our conversation. I'm honored to know Rob even more than I already was after having this conversation with him just a few hours ago. So let's get right into it, shall we, friends? My email is hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love hearing from you. Please hit me up anytime. And here's my conversation with Rob Shear. Let's go. Rob Shear, welcome early this morning to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good morning. Good morning. I've already had my, I think I'm on my second cup of coffee. So, you know, life is good. Life is good. Thank you so much for getting up early uh, for this. It's 7 a.m. where I am, 8 a.m. where you are. We both have busy days ahead. So thank you for making the time to do it right now. Oh, this is amazing. I'm, I'm, thank you for having me. I'm very humbled. I haven't... Uh, had my first proper cup of coffee because I'm a hot coffee guy. I'm I'm a coffee snob, very good coffee, always the right way, the right grind, the right temperature. But we live in this super small house, right? And uh, because it's so early, everybody's sleeping. So I had to make some iced coffee yesterday so I could have at least some coffee this morning uh, be, because I couldn't like grind. Or I couldn't make anything this morning, right? Um, and so I'm not incredibly super caffeinated yet. But 
this this uh, iced coffee will do. It'll do. Yeah. It's it's. And I'm totally the opposite. Coffee just really doesn't mean anything to me. I put a splash of powdered cream just to change the color a little bit. But yeah, if if I have two cups, I'm fine. And my husband now will drink coffee all day. And like he's, yeah. Not yeah, fine. I'm a I'm a I am. Uh, I guess you could say coffee snob, and I drink it from sun up till sundown. The the caffeine. I don't do it for the caffeine. It doesn't really. Uh, affect me in that way and so I start drinking it super early 536 is my first cup and I'll usually drink my last cup the last thing I drink during a day's time is coffee so usually around uh, 11 or 12 I will you know when I'm wrapping up work I'll have my last cup of coffee and it kind of you know it, it just calms me down for the rest of the day so I don't I don't get how it doesn't affect me like most people my wife can't drink it past 1 p.m. If she drinks a cup past them, she's done. She's up all night, and then we have we have a problem. Yeah. Uh, but me, I, it literally puts me to sleep. I don't get it. Uh, no, different same strokes. Ways your wife. Same yeah, ways your wife. Yeah, different strokes for different folks, I guess. Uh, well, yeah. again, thank you so much for being here, Rob. I'm super excited. You and I met uh, a couple months ago working on a different project, and as I've gotten to know you, it became super clear super quickly that I wanted to talk to you on this platform on the Let's Give a Damn podcast. So I'm so excited to jump into your story, to jump into all that you're doing, all that you are, and we'll get into as much as we can. I know that it would be impossible to even presume that we could get all of who you are in the next hour, hour and a half, but we'll do our best. So let's let's dive right in. Let's quit talking about coffee and start talking Perfect. about much more important things. Perfect. Yeah. Well, you know what? I guarantee you, you know, my story doesn't start out like most people's story that are listening to this podcast. You know, I'm the youngest of 10 children. My mother had been married six times. We lived in and out of every shelter in Maryland, Virginia, and DC. And life was really, really hard. I mean, um, the monster who lived in our house when we would live in a house was um, the worst person in the world. And that was mm. my, and, you know, I'm 54 this year and I still get to be reminded every single day how bad of a monster he really was as I shower and I see the scar on my leg from the cherry of the cigarette that he would put out. And that was very common in our house. That was to us what we called family. Um, it was the days he would sit in the recliner and yell for his Pabst Blue Ribbon. And we knew as a child, if we didn't run fast enough, and even if we did, we were still going to get that cherry of the cigarette cigarette out on her leg and a mother who was dysfunctional, who had mental illness and didn't know how to stand up to the monster. And even though she would leave because of the beatings were so bad, we would always end up back. Um, and as I was getting growing up, my brothers and sisters started falling to the wayside. And what I mean by that is that they were running away. There was teen pregnancy. Um, and then I turned 12. And I will never forget it. I'm 12 years old and both of my parents die and they die within three months of each other. But to me, it was the greatest gift that was ever given to me because I knew that I was never going to feel the pain that my father put on me or the pain that my mother put on my heart. You know, I don't remember my mom ever hugging me and saying, I love you. I don't remember a picture being hung on the wall. Um, I don't remember before the age of 12, a birthday or Christmas. I just remember going from one empty house to the next. And I remember being woken up 
the middle of the night and having to run because my father was in a drunken stupor or, you know, we were being evicted. And so it was just really, really bad. And I just kept saying to myself, even as a young boy, that I deserved better. And I would see the neighbor kids playing with their dad in the front yard and throwing the football. And I used to always think, you know, even I remember as early as the age of six, I remember sitting on the stoop and looking at a dad who was throwing the football with his son. And I just kept thinking to myself, I wonder if I could be that boy. Or I wonder when I get older, will I be that dad? Um, And so that was life. And at 12, when my parents died, um, I went into the great, wonderful system that we all call foster care. And by the way, I'm very sarcastic about that because the system is absolutely shattered. And it was shattered back in the 70s when I went into it. And it is still shattered today in 2020. And as a matter of fact, I think that it's not gotten better, but worse. And I also believe that things that are shattered cannot they can't just be glued back together. They have Mm -hmm. to be rebuilt. And our foster care system has to be rebuilt. But for me at 12, I was the good kid. I was the kid who got good grades. I was the kid who didn't give my foster parents any problems. I was the kid who literally fell through the cracks. And the reason I fell through the cracks is because I wasn't the kid that everybody expects out of foster care. I wasn't disruptive. I wasn't running away. I wasn't having to have a social worker come and visit all the time. Why? Because I did what I was supposed to do. Why did I do that? I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be loved by a family. I wanted to be a son and not a foster child. Um, It was just so important for me to, to have that. And so I kept thinking that if I was really good and if I vacuumed the house before they asked me, or if I watched their kids, cause they had three younger children um, without complaining or, you know, do the dinner dishes, even though there was a dishwasher right there, but I would still hand wash them that, you know, they would recognize that I was a good boy. And, um, and so, you know, life went on and then, you know, I couldn't believe it. I was actually making it to my senior year of high school. I was going to be the first one in my family to graduate. I could not believe the fact that I had made it that far from what I had come from up into the age of 12 to be where I was. And by the way, I went into a foster family um, that I had amazing foster mother, but the father was very still abusive, very much, you know, not a good guy. Um, and so it was really hard, but I just knew that if I graduated from high school and I got that diploma, like everybody says is so important that I would make something of myself. And it was two weeks after my 18th birthday, Nick, it was the fall of 1984. I will never forget it. I came home from school and instead of being greeted and how was your day? I was given my trash bag literally given my trash bag and I became homeless. Hmm. I was told that the check wouldn't arrive any longer. And so I no longer had a place to live. Seriously. And I literally became a homeless kid living on the streets in Northern Virginia. I will never forget that first night trying to find somewhere to sleep and um, just realizing as I, as I woke up the next morning and I doubt I very slept at all that this was my life now. And what was I going to do? And I was scared that if I told anybody that I would be put in a juvenile detention center, um, you know, people always ask me now, you know, why didn't you tell many people? And, And there were people, 
people that knew. Um, but I was scared that I was going to be put with those kids. And, you know, and, and understanding, you know, as a gay man growing up um, in the late 70s, early 80s, I mean, I was called a sissy. I was, um, I was thrown in lockers. And I, I just knew that if I was put in one of those places, um, it would be the death of me. And so I would wake up every morning wherever I would sleep and I would go to school. And I would hide my trash bag behind the bush. I would hope kids wouldn't make fun of me because I couldn't tell you the last time I'd had a haircut or, you know, much less brush my teeth. And I also had holes in the bottom of my shoes. But every day I would go to school because that was one of my safe places. It was a place that I knew no matter what, I could get food every single day. And I used to wait till all the kids left the cafeteria and I would dig into the trash cans and gather as much food as I could to eat that night. You know, I had a $3.35 an hour job working at the local taco place, but it just wasn't enough. And when I wasn't working my job, I was sitting in the public library reading every book I got my hands on. I knew even at that age, if I educated my mind, I could educate my future. Problem was, as weeks and months went by, I kept falling more and more into the wall of invisibility. No one saw me, no one acknowledged me, no one called on me, no one looked at me. See, I realized at that moment that I wasn't part of a community, that I really wasn't anything, that I was truly disposable, just like the trash bag, that I was a disposable child and nobody cared. No one gave a shit about me or what happened to me. And so week after week after month, I was barely getting by. I remember the end of April rolled around. I was a scrawny kid, had lost so much weight, wasn't eating properly. My teeth were so messed up. And by the way, my beautiful pearly whites, and they are beautiful. They cost me an arm and a leg because nobody bothered to stop to just give me a toothbrush. And so it was so important that, you know, as a kid, Today, as I look at my children and I look at my community of children, you know, I just, I realize what it felt like for me not to feel like anybody cared. But at the end of April, my name got called over the loudspeaker. Oh my gosh, I was sitting in Mrs. Brown's English class. I was so excited. Finally, finally, they were going to acknowledge that I was homeless and someone was going to help me. I just, I just knew that that's why they would call me down to the principal. What other reason? I was a good student. I never got in trouble. This was my moment. And I walked down this flight of stairs. I walked into the principal's office. I told them my name. And the woman said, Mr. Thompson would like to see you. And Mr. Thompson was our principal. And I was like, wow. So I go into the principal's office and I'm standing at his doorway. And he looks at me and he says, Robert? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, um, you're going to the senior trip. I looked at him and I said, what? He said, you're going on the senior trip. I said, no, sir. I said, I didn't have the money to pay for the senior trip, which by the way, was two nights in New York City on a Greyhound bus. And I said, I didn't pay for the trip. And he said, nope. He said, someone paid for the trip for you and handed me an envelope and it was $75 in it. And he said, and they left this for you. You know, that one act of kindness, 
that happened in my life at that moment was able to get me over the, the ledge that I needed to get to get to graduation day. And sure enough, I made it. I made it to graduation day. And I'll never forget the teacher lining us all up in our caps and gowns. And oh my gosh, I was finally going to get that piece of paper. That piece of paper that I had been taught was so valuable and that it could truly change my life. Well, they started calling out names. And as they called out names and kids would walk across the stage, people were clapping and screaming. And then they called my name. Silence. No one said a word. No one spoke. No one did anything. And at that moment, I knew I was truly disposable that my community that supposedly loved me so much didn't give a damn about me. And I walked across the stage and I just left. I left the auditorium. I went to the back parking lot and I sat on the, the curb. And you know what, Nick, as many times as I tell this story, it just still gets me that as a young boy, my community didn't care about me. And I knew at that moment in my life, I was homeless. I was truly a homeless kid. See, I had not admitted the fact that I was homeless prior. And the reason for that is because I would go to school every single day and I would go to the public library every day and I had a job. And now if I didn't have the school to fill my time, I literally was walking the streets. And that's when I realized I was homeless. And so for several weeks, I walked the streets. And I just kept saying to myself, you deserve better. Something is definitely gotta happen for you. And so I just decided at that moment that I was gonna join the military, that I was gonna join the United States Navy. And by the way, I wasn't joining the Navy because I wanted to protect any of you. I was joining the Navy because I was cold, I was hungry and I was scared and I needed a roof over my head. I hitchhiked down Route 32, where I knew that there was a, there was actually a, a base there in Fort Meade, Maryland. And I walked up to the base and I walked up to the guard and I said, I want to join the Navy. And he looked at me and said, young man, it doesn't work like that. And I said, what, what do I need to do? And he says, you need to go meet with a recruiter. And he says, and you're going to have to take an ASVAB test. And he was like, and then the Navy will decide if they want you. And I was like, really? And he was like, he's like, yeah, we just don't take everybody. And I was like, oh, well, I was like, why would they want to take the dirty kid? And so I went and met with the recruiter. It took several weeks for me to be able to get my ASVAB test. And I took my ASVAB test and um, I, the recruiter went back to the recruiter and the recruiter said, we're accepting you in the United States Navy. And I was like, oh my God, yes, yes. I was so absolutely thrilled. And I remember he handed me a key, a key. Most of your listeners have don't even know what a key looks like at a hotel, but there was keys back in those days. And he handed me a key to the Red Roof Inn, which was across the street from Fort Meade, Maryland, from the, from the Army base. And um, I went into that hotel room. I put the key in. I unlocked the door. When I walked in, I dropped my trash bag. And I remember, besides the time that I had graduated, that I really cried. And I cried. I cried for my mom. I cried for my dad. I cried for my brothers and sisters. I cried for the life that I had been living at that moment. And then I cried for my community. Um, and I decided, I stood there in the bathroom. 
after taking a shower that felt like it lasted for hours and I was scrubbing the dirt that you could see with your eyes, but I also was scrubbing the dirt that I felt that was inside of me because that's what my community had made me feel. And I stood in the bathroom mirror and I looked at myself and I said, you know what? From this moment forward, you'll never tell your story and you will be somebody you're not and you will make it. Yeah. Be somebody you're not, you know, because I realized at that moment that who I was, nobody cared about. So the next day I walked across the street, I got sworn into the United States Navy. I flew to Great Lakes, Illinois, and I went through boot camp. And by the way, I didn't go through boot camp. I excelled in boot camp. Mm. I was actually voted what they call the honor man. And that is an award that is given out to one recruit out of all the division. And there are probably 300 recruits. They all vote for one recruit that shined above the rest. And I got that award. Finally, somebody recognized that I was a good human. That was the most amazing moment in my life because I had worked so hard for people just to acknowledge me and they were acknowledging me. And so I then went to my A school and I was about three weeks into my A school. I was going to be a yeoman. I was really good at typing. I was really good at filing. And that's what I was going to be was I was going to be a yeoman on a ship. And um, I woke up in a hospital, literally in a hospital. Mm. I remember the nurse walking in and I said, what, what, why am I here? And she said, young man, you don't know what happened. I said, no, ma'am. And she said, "Um, your bladder ruptured. I said, what? She said, your bladder ruptured. See, Nick, when I was a little boy, my father, for his way of control, anytime we would go to the bathroom, he would punch us. We'd go to the bathroom and he would punch us in our bladder. And after years of the punching, I finally, my, my mind told me if I went to the bathroom, I would be punched. And so as a young boy, even as a young teen, I would hold my urine as much as I could because I was so scared to have that feeling of that punch. And finally, my bladder couldn't take it anymore and it just ruptured. But the Navy fixed me. They put me back together. They sent me away on two weeks convalescent leave into a hotel in Milwaukee where I stayed. And I came back to the Naval base and I went into Petty Officer Green's office to get my report to go to the next school. And he was sitting there and I could see that his eyes, he was definitely emotional. And laying on his desk was a yellow envelope, big envelope. And he looked at me and he said, this is the hardest thing I've done. See, Petty Officer Green knew my story. I'd shared the fact that I was a homeless kid and how much the Navy meant to me and how much he meant to me by just showing that act of kindness when I was in going through the military. Um, he said, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. He says, the Navy is medically discharging you. Mm. We're not at a time of war and they feel that you're, you're more of a nuisance to us than you are a help because they didn't know if my bladder would rupture again. And so he handed me the envelope and in the envelope was a one-way plane ticket to Dulles Airport which is in Virginia, and one month pay. He said, I'm also sorry to tell you that you've missed the cutoff by two weeks to be paid for the rest of your life for disability. <sighs> there I was again, let down by my community, and I was homeless again. I flew to Dulles, Virginia, 
I got off the plane and then I hitchhiked. I hitchhiked down Route 7. I found a little town called Gore, Virginia, where I rented a hotel by the week. I had enough money to last me two months. I went and hitchhiked into the town of Winchester, Virginia, and I got a job working at the Dart. That's basically like the target of nowadays. Back in the day, it was called Dart. And I got a job working there. I worked there for a while, and I knew I was at the point where I was just weeks away from being homeless again. And I did what I knew was safe for me. I went back to my safe place, the public library. I pulled out a telephone book, I pulled a piece of paper, stuck it in the manual typewriter, and I proceeded to type myself a resume, a resume that was so unbelievable, you would have hired me. I went to the Goodwill, I bought myself a shirt and tie, a pair of pants, and I walked into a bank and I applied for a job. I remember sitting there as I was being interviewed, my palms were sweating, and I knew that the gentleman was going to find out that everything on the paper was a lie, and I was going to go to jail. Because I thought that that's what you did. You went to jail for stuff like that. But instead, he looked at me after an hour and 30-minute interview, and he hired me on the spot. Hired me. I got the wow. job. Nick, it was life-changing. Again, life-changing for me. I started working at this bank. I started climbing that ladder of success. I got an apartment. I bought my first car. When my boss would tell me to come into work at 8 a.m., I would get there at 6 a.m. And when he would tell me to leave at 6, I'd stay till 8. And I would have this yellow tablet. I'd walk around. I'd write everything down that he said or any of the senior staff said because I wanted to learn. I wanted to be successful. I wanted people to look at me and said, you made it. See, at that moment in my life, in my early 20s, I realized my three golden rings. My three golden rings is what my community had taught me at that point. Me, me, me. My three golden rings were to buy a big house. So you all would look at it and say, wow, whoever lives in that house, they're successful. To buy a very expensive car. Because when I drove by you, you would look at it and say, wow, whoever is in that car is successful. And number three, to have as much money as I could have so I could take you all to Disney World because you would think that I was successful. And that's what I was worried. It was about what you thought. And about two years into the job, I'd already started climbing the ladder pretty fast. But the pain of being such a fraud was weighing on me so hard that I went into my boss's office and I handed him my letter of resignation. I remember that day as he read it and he looked at me and said, why are you, why are you doing this? He said, you're one of my hardest workers, my best hire. I said, remember that piece of paper that I gave you with the resume on it? He said, yeah. And I said, it was all lies. He said, what? I said, it was all lies. And I proceeded to tell him my story. He looked at me and he said, Rob, you're the most honest person I've ever met. The hardest worker that has ever stepped foot in this bank. And he ripped up my letter of resignation. And he said, listen, go back to work. Continue to keep doing what you're doing. You are going to be successful. And that's what I did. And by the way, I became successful. I started climbing that corporate ladder like you wouldn't believe. Even though I didn't know the difference between there, there, and there, what I did know is how to make people like me. And I knew that if I worked really hard in the banking industry, that I would be very successful. And that I was. And by the time I was in my 30s, I was already an executive. Life was freaking good. I was living in D.C. I had a big house. I drove a fancy, fast car. I had lots of money. I traveled everywhere. And then I met him. 
I met Reese. Mm. I'll never forget it. Sitting in a bar, he walked in. And at that moment, he changed my life. See, I'd been in relationships prior to that, abusive relationships. I was abusing drugs to help medicate me. I was in a place where people didn't realize how bad it was. See, I suffer from depression. And to this day, I still suffer from depression. But there was something about this guy who walked into the bar and looked at me that made me realize that I could be who I wanted to be. And so I started dating Reese. And about two years into us dating, we were living in separate homes. Reese was convincing me more and more that I needed to be more authentic, that I needed to not worry about what people thought about me, and that I needed to worry about what I thought about myself. See, Reese is totally different than me. Reese has a double masters. He grew up in the Midwest. His parents have been married for 50 some years. Um, he is a good guy. And I just had never felt that kind of love before. And at that moment, we decided to spend the rest of our lives together. So my husband was graduating from his second master's in interior design, and we bought a brownstone in DC and gutted it and restored it. And we were living the gay life. I mean, everybody <laughs> loved us. We had the best parties. You know, we were even invited to the mayor's house for dinner. I mean, everybody knew the new Robin Reese. And then I looked at Reese and said, I want to be a dad. I want to be a dad. See, I'd asked Reese that question on one of our first dates. Do you ever want to be a dad? And he said, of course. And I decided at that moment that I needed to be a dad then. And so we started filling the applications out to adopt a child overseas. See, we only wanted one child. We wanted one child who basically would make us whole, as I would say to him. We'd be the cute little gay couple pushing the expensive stroller down the street. And everybody would look at us and be like, wow. See, again, I was so worried about what everybody else was thinking. And one Saturday morning, Reese and I were having coffee, um, probably suffering from a hangover. And all of a sudden, Barbara Harrison, who's a local media celebrity, came on the news and was talking about children in foster care, talking about kids who needed a home, kids who just needed someone to love them. And Reese looked at me and said, now explain to me why we're not adopting a child from foster care. And I said, because we don't talk about that. And he said, you know, maybe all of these years of you not talking about it is the problem that you have. Damn it, he's so smart. He was so right. He was so right. I looked at him at that moment and said, you're right. I have failed. I have failed. I failed my community. See, my community is the 438,000 children that are sitting in foster care. And I have failed them. Because I was so worried about what everybody else thought, I forgot about what was important. And at that moment, I looked at Reese and said, we have to do this. And on that Monday, we went to Child and Family Services. We told them we wanted to adopt. We told them we wanted one child. And the woman said, of course, you want a baby. And I said, yes. And she says, two-year waiting list. I said, what? She said, yes. She said, if you want to be a foster parent and foster to adopt, you probably could get a baby a little sooner. And so I said to Reese, there's no way in hell I'm doing that. I'm not, you know, I know how those kids are. And he's like, don't forget you were one of those kids. Mm. He was like, if we could change a child's life for one day, one day. He's like, don't you feel like we've done what we should do? Damn it. Again, he's so freaking smart. And he's right. 
And so that's what we decided to do. We were going to foster to adopt. We did all the classes. We filled out all the paperwork. And then we waited. January. January of 2009. The phone rang. Social worker saying they had a placement for us. But they didn't have one child. They had two. A little girl and her little brother. The girl was four and her brother was two. And they said, we know that you only wanted one child, but I think that these kids will be a fit for you. And they're not going to be in the system long because they're going to go back to their mom, but they really are going to be a fit. So I said to Reese, what should we do? And he said, well, let's meet them. It's like taking a kid to a candy store and saying, you can't have a piece of candy. I wanted to be a dad so bad. And I got to meet them. Amaya and Makai. Wow. That was life-changing for me. As I looked at Reese pick up this little boy, who, by the way, was two years old, we were told he would never walk and never talk. We were told that he had autism. We were told that he had failure to thrive. We were told that he had ADHD. And we were also told and asked, were we sure we wanted this one as if he was a piece of clothing? I remember Reese looking at that little boy and I was jealous because I could see already the love he had for that little boy. And I knew that I wanted to love like that. I wanted to be a dad like I could see Reese was going to be. And we decided to make sure that Amaya and Makai had a good home. And sure enough, the next day they arrived with their trash bags, their trash bags. And I asked the social worker, are you kidding me? We really, this is what we do? We still use trash bags? And she says, what should we use? I said, how about some dignity? And it was just so heavy on my heart. But again, I was so concerned about making sure that Amaya Makai had everything they wanted and making sure that I was working, Reese was working. We were just trying to get by. Now all of a sudden as a family of four and with one son who has special needs. I remember that very first night as we pulled the clothes out of her trash bag, they were all torn and tattered. I remember us getting the kids, putting them in the car and going to the Target. I remember every time that my daughter would look at something, we would put it in the cart. And we ended up with two carts full of stuff. I remember saying to Reese that I'm the happiest guy in the entire world because I'm a dad to the most beautiful little girl. But I'm a dad to the saddest little girl. And she's never going to smile. We got home. We unpacked the car. We filled the tub with bubbles. There were so many bubbles, you could barely see my beautiful daughter's brown little skin in the bubble bath. She got out of the bathtub. She went into her bedroom. And laying on the bed, Risa put three nightgowns. She walked over. She picked one of the gowns up, and she tore the tag off. And she turned around, and she smiled at me. I said, Amaya, why are you smiling? She said, Mr. Rob, I've never owned a new pair of pajamas before. Mm. It's just not right. Mm -mm. It's not right that we have kids in a system because of choices that other people made. And we won't even get them a brand new pair of damn pajamas. How can we be like that? How can we say that we're good humans, that we care about our community, that we care about our children? We can't even get a little girl a brand new pair of pajamas. You know, I never forgot that moment, but all of a sudden life was just moving forward. And within a matter of a couple of months, we get another phone call that there were two more boys who needed a home, a six month old little baby and his two year old brother, Tristan and Grayson. We all of a sudden became a family of six with three of them under the age of two, but we just knew that we had to make this work. 
we knew that we had to change their lives. And even though we knew Makai and Amaya were going back to their mother, we just knew that we had to be there. Well, Amaya and Makai didn't go back to their mom. Their mom started using drugs again. And after a year and a half of living with us, I just felt that it was time for us to file for adoption. And that's what we did. We filed for adoption for all four kids. We wanted to make sure that all children, the children knew is that they had a stable home and that we loved them. And by the way, we loved their parents too. They just didn't know how to love themselves. And we did that. After two years of battling the court systems, we were awarded Maya and Makai, Grayson and Tristan, and they all became the sheer kids. It was the most amazing type of day to adopt our babies. But I couldn't kept, kept forgetting about what that trash bag felt like. I kept for thinking about what the other children in our system feel like. See, the fact is, is that only 54% of kids in foster care actually graduate from high school, Nick. That only 11% apply to college, and then only 3% get a college education. We have failed these children. Mm -hmm. When you look at our prison population and you see that 64% of all men in prison from East Coast to West Coast, they were in foster care. That 80% of every inmate has been touched by foster care. When you look at the trafficking of young children, the statistics show you that 80% of those kids are from foster care. As of today, as you and I talk, and when this clock strikes midnight tonight, 700 children will have arrived in the shattered system of foster care. 700 little kids between the ages of birth up to the age of 19 will arrive in a system because of a choice that someone else made. I just knew that I had to make my choices better. So we used to have these huge toy drives I was really proud of the toy drives that we would have at Christmas time. I had an office on the East Coast, an office on the West Coast. My kids were being raised and they were very privileged. And Reese and I were very privileged humans too. And we had this whole thing in our mind that if you give a needy kid a toy at Christmas time, you could pat yourself on the back and say, you did something. See, that's what so many of us are doing. We are chest pounders and we feel that, oh, that we go out and make sandwiches for the needy kids and we tell people about it, that that makes us better humans. That's the way I was. And I would collect thousands of toys during the holidays with my employees and my neighbors and my church and my kids would go shopping. And then on the 26th of December, we would wake up and not one of us would think about those kids. We wouldn't think whether or not that toy had already been broken. We would go on with our privileged lives. See, the fact is I am a white privileged male. I'm raising four black kids. I know what it's like to be privileged. And I know what it's like to have kids, people look at you because of your skin color. And the fact is, is that I was playing the privileged role when it came to being toy giver, as I would call it. Until seven years ago, my husband walked into my office and he said to me, let's get ready for the toy drive. We have to start planning it. And I said, I don't want to. He said, what do you mean? I said, I don't want to do it. I said, what are we teaching our kids? I said, are we really teaching our kids the, what valuing a human is? And he says, Rob, what do you want to do? I said, I want to eliminate trash bags. He said, you are batshit crazy. I said, you married me. You know I am. <laughs> I said, but I think we can do it. And so we got my senior team together. We got my kids together. We got some members of our church together. And we started talking. 
And I told my story. I finally told my story. There were people in the room that were shocked. The tears were flowing. But I told my story. And I told it because I wanted my children to be proud of their dad. I told them to never be ashamed of where you came from. And remember that you get to write the chapter of every single one of your pages in your book. And so at that moment, we started making the list of things that were going to go into a case. And mind you, my kids were like iPods, iPads. Sure, sure. And I said, it's not about what they want. It's about what they need. See, I needed them to feel that they were loved. I needed them to feel that they were wanted. I needed them to feel that their future was bright. And I wanted to have that they made sure they had hope and they had dignity. So immediately we said pajamas with a new tag. We wanted to make sure that every single child got their own toothbrush, their own toothpaste. We wanted to make sure that every child got their own lotion, their own shampoo, their own conditioner, and their own bar of soap. Nick, just imagine being a child walking into a stranger's house and you're asked to get into a shower and use the bar of soap that the entire family was using. It's just not healthy. Mm-mm. It's not healthy for your mindset for a child to have to go through that. And we don't want them to go through that. We make sure that every single child gets an activity because kids who come into our system, over 93% of them come in the back of a police cruiser and they go to holding centers where they could stay all day with nothing to do. We want to make sure that kids who are under the age of 10 get a coloring book and crayons and kids over the age of 10 get a journal and a pen and pencil set. Several years ago, I was filming a CNN special and I will never forget meeting this 13 year old boy as he opened up his case and started to pull the items out. He started to cry. We stopped the cameras and I bent down and I said, why are you crying? He said, Mr. Rob, I've been in foster care for three years. I've been in 11 homes. Every time I walked into a home, I had all this music in my mind. He says, the only thing I've ever wanted, and he pulled out his journal, is a journal to write my music in. Mm. Kids over the age of 10, we give them a journal and a pen and pencil set. But I will tell you that that journal was a 50 cent composition book. But to that boy, it was gold. To that boy, it was his future. To that boy, he realized at that moment that someone loved him. Mm-hmm. It was life-changing for him, and I know it. And then we give every kid a book. As I said in the very beginning of the story, if we educate our mind, we will educate our future. And we must get kids to love to read, no matter what their age is. See, I was in my 20s before I owned my first book. And as an author who has published a book, I published it for two reasons. One, I want you to love it in your mind. Number two, I want you to love it in your heart. But the most flattering thing you could ever do to a book for an author is pass it on. Mm -hmm. Pass it on. See, there's no such thing as a used book. It's only a book that's been loved. And I want kids to love to read. And then every kid gets a stuffing. See, My son, Tristan, who now is 11 years old, he told me that no matter how old you are, you always love a good stuffy. I realized that as he handed me one of his and told me that I should have it for the rest of my life. I wanted every kid to have a stuffed animal. And then a blanket, a blanket. 
See, my son Grayson was six years old at the time when we started this charity. He came to us at the age of two with a mother that was 12. Damn. He said, Daddy, we have to give everybody a blankie. Hmm. I said, buddy, I said, you know, these kids aren't cold. He said, no, daddy. He said, every time they wrap themselves up in their blankie, they know we love them. Hmm. Wow. Isn't that what each and every one of us want? We want to be loved. We want to matter. We want people to know that we are not disposable. So that's how the case started. And we went from one case to two case to 500 cases to seven years later, Nick, we have given out over 100,000 cases to all 50 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico. And we have done this with no corporate sponsors. We have done this from the love of our community. Mm. See, we all must understand something. Your community, it's not your zip code. It's not. It's our human race. And what affects people in my little town of Darnstown, Maryland, affects people in Portland. And what affects people in Portland affects people in Dallas. And we must all understand that we need to take care of each other because that's what our forefathers expect from us. And that's what we should expect from each other. If I have a piece of bread and you're hungry, I should share my bread with you. And if you have a piece of bread and I'm hungry, you should share your bread with me. You know, for me, I realized that my three golden rings, what they really truly are. Number one, my family, Mm. my beautiful, beautiful family. Number two, my community. Because once my community was educated, they did truly love me, by the way. They really cared about me. The fact is, is that they just didn't know about me. Can you believe that? That they didn't know because no one had educated them. And once I did that, I realized that they did love me and that I wasn't disposable. And then finally, my dash. We read the poem about it. People talk about it. It's true. We're all going to be given one. Rich, poor, black, white, gay, straight, male, female. Each and every one of us are given the exact same thing. That's a dash. Walk through your graveyard, you see it. The year you're born, your dash, and the year you die. I want my dash to be so bright. I want my children to walk by it and it shines so bright that they say, my dad, he just didn't talk about it. He did it. He did it. And that's what I want to see happen, is I want each and every one of us to be able to say we're doers. We're doers. And by the way, I don't live in a big house and fancy anymore. I live on a farm. I drive a Toyota hybrid that's many years old. And I could care less about how much money is in my bank. But the thing that I care about is my community. I go to bed every single night thinking about the kids who are coming into the system and whether or not they're going to feel loved. Last fall, I had an opportunity to meet a young boy, a senior in high school. He was in the system. He looked at me 
and said that he didn't have a future and that he was gonna probably be homeless just like me. I couldn't allow that to happen. I went home and I told Reese about this boy. It weighed so heavy on my heart day after day that finally he came and had dinner with our family. That was in October of last year. In December, my beautiful son Alex moved home with us. Mm. He is now 19, graduated from high school, enrolled in college. But the thing that Alex sees is he sees two dads that love him and love his siblings. And we never call him a foster child. We never call him the kid who was in foster care. We talk to him because he's our son and he will be my son for the rest of his life and then some. So I do believe that each and every one of us have an opportunity to make change. I do believe that each and every one of us need to look at ourselves in the mirror and realize that if we cannot adopt, we should foster. And if we cannot foster, we should donate. And if you cannot donate, you should volunteer. And if you can't volunteer, you really need to check yourself. Hmm. Because really, what's your purpose? Because our purpose should always be to empower each other. So that's my story, my friend. Ooh. Uh, a few things. Number one, I feel like I just drank from a fucking fire hose. Not I feel like. I did. We did. Um, that was, you know, I've done 155, 160 of these interviews on this podcast. And usually, even people that are really well-spoken, people that do this kind of thing for a living, I have to kind of prod them along, right? As they're, and there's always things that I want to interject, right? They're telling their story and I want to get in there, talk a little bit, kind of tease things out. Or they simply can't like talk for very long. I have to like give them prompts to like keep going. I have to help them like get their story out. I didn't have to do that with you. I think you just spoke for 48 50 minutes and you shared again there was no as I'm thinking back on the last few minutes of you sharing there was no point in there where I wanted to interject there were plenty of things I wanted to say but then you would you would you would tease out what I wanted to, what I was going to ask you right so that was just a that was a lot another thing I want to say is I feel there were so many points during your story so many times during the story you just shared that I felt like more than anything in the world, I would give anything to go back and hug young Rob along the way and say, dude, like you're enough. Now I totally understand you all along the way, you trying to get people's approval because you had such a crazy fucked up like upbringing, of course, of course, you want someone to value you for who you are, but that didn't happen. So now you've got to be valued on your accomplishments, whether it's in high school or the bank or any of that. But really all along the way, you should have had people just reminding you, Rob, if you don't do anything, if you just stand there, you're enough. You just existing, you're enough. And it hurts me that that didn't happen for you. And that isn't happening for hundreds of thousands of children at any given time, right? Right. And one of the last things I want to say before we move on, we've got plenty more to talk about. I'm really glad that you met Reese. So, I know you are too. 
<laughs> but that that was the that was where it all shifted, right? That was where it shifted for me. So I will tell you um, that Nick, prior to meeting Reese, I had four suicide attempts. Four. Mm. Um, I had um, was addicted to drugs. Um, I had been in and out of drug rehab. Um, I still was very successful and used to be able to live that double life, um, you know. And even even at the very end, um, when I the drugs were not working enough that I started shooting heroin. Um, and that was my last moment is when I um, was arrested on the streets of Baltimore City with a broken needle in my arm. And I went into rehab at that moment. And um, I'd met Reese shortly after that. And so um, he changed my life completely. And my husband and I have been together 15 years. And um, I am the man I am right now because of him. Mm. And I truly am. Because he is my foundation. He is my biggest fan. He is my loudest cheerleader. But he's also my biggest critic. And... The thing that he tells me all the time is that I am enough, you know? And if I don't do anything ever again, I am enough, especially when it comes to being a dad and a husband. So yeah, Reese is, he's one of a kind and I'm so lucky that he's mine. That's really beautiful. Um, Man, there's so many places I wanna go. Again, thank you for, thank you for just being so vulnerable along the way in your story. I mean, I know that a lot of that came naturally because you share your story and we'll talk about some of the ways that, you know, some of the different places you've been able to share your story. It's really beautiful and amazing, but also you didn't have to tell all those details. You know, it, it, again, your story would still be compelling enough without getting into the nitty gritty, but that all helps. That helps us because now even people that I bet you so many people are listening right now, haven't ever given one thought or a second thought to children in the foster care system like they haven't because it's again it's not one of those things that you see each and every day most people are not most people listening are not a product of the foster care system they're not they weren't put up for adoption so many people you know what maybe if maybe they had some sort of a crazy upbringing but they still have you know a mom and a dad that they know and they can point to or you know whoever right and and but there are still hundreds i've never i'll tell you a little bit about my my story we when we first got married, so we just uh, we just had our 12th wedding anniversary this past weekend. And it's been wonderful. It's been crazy. It's been hard. Uh, but when we were first married, my wife and I thought we were in a community that was very conscious of the foster care system and the adoption system. And so there were a lot of people around us at the time that had either adopted uh, you know, from different situations or they had adopted out of the foster care system. And so we, again, we had, we had, we saw this all over the place and we thought, well, maybe, maybe we shouldn't, uh, have any of, you know, we shouldn't birth any of our own kids. There's so many kids out there that, that need this love. Right. And so this was 11 years ago. We started thinking about a family. I was in school. She was working full time. And so we, um, had a, we had a, a pretty complicated failed pregnancy and after that failed pregnancy, they told us you can't get pregnant for a year. It wasn't a normal, you know, miscarriage where they say, right. wait six weeks. They said, you can't like for a year, don't try to get, cause this could happen again. So at that point we were thinking about adopting our second kid and we, we decided to switch that because we couldn't even try to get pregnant for a year. So we got into the adoption process here domestically and we ended up getting uh, connected with a, well, a birth mother 
she chose us, you know, out of this booklet that they have. And she was, it reminded me of your daughter's birth mom. She was 13. And as far as we can tell, she was abused by a family member and became impregnated. And she, um, ultimately, it was a failed adoption because at the last minute, she decided to keep the baby. Literally, you know, you have like three days after the baby yeah. was born. And literally at hour 71, she decided to keep uh, this baby. It devastated us, mostly because we know that like, okay, this girl is 13. Ideally, she gets to keep her baby, right? But this was not, this was not out of love. This baby was not birthed out of love. This baby was not going to have a wonderful situation. And so we, anyway, it was a really weird time, but we, and then we had three kids pretty right away after that. We got pregnant, like two of them were surprises and one was on, on purpose, I guess you could say. And so now, but, but there's still this, we talk about this little girl often. I, I haven't seen her since she was three days old. And I think about her so, so often because I wonder, you know, being raised by at the time a 13 year old mother, I wonder how she turned out. Yeah. And I think about her and I think about all these other kids and I still have this burden. I don't know what our place is. And I, I honestly don't because we have three kids and it's a lot and they're it's amazing and we love it, but it's a lot already. And I, I can't even fathom right now in this stage of life, thinking about, you know, bringing more children into our family. But I think about these children all the time, Rob. And what, what bothers me is that we tout ourselves as, you know, the richest, wealthiest, most put together nation in the world. And yet, I mean, it doesn't take very long to realize how fucked up we are in so many different areas. I mean, you're talking now on the one hand, 500,000 kids in the foster care system is a lot. a lot. But on the other hand, it's not at all. No. I mean, if you look at the amount of I'm just going to look at because, you know, you talked about your you, you said you, you belong to a church community. So you have some sort of faith background. I, I'm a Christian as well. And when I look at when I look at just Christians, so this is not even getting into other uh, religious groups or people that don't have any faith affiliation at all. This is just Christians who uh, at least professed Christians amount to, you know, a couple hundred million people in this country. Again, at least people that like say they adhere to it. Christians follow a faith that explicitly calls us to love the marginalized, love your neighbor, take care of people. And you even, you laid it out. If you can't adopt or, you know, if you can't bring in kids from the foster care system, you can donate, you can volunteer. And if not, what the hell are you even doing? We could, so on the one hand, lots of kids, hundreds of thousands of kids. On the other hand, we could eradicate this tomorrow. So I can tell you, Nick, you must have you must have recently read my my op ed I did on the Hill. I did mm -hmm. an op ed on the Hill recently, and it was all about that. It was about our faith base, um, how we could eliminate our child welfare system if just each church or synagogue or mosque would take in one child, just one child. And, you know, and really love that child. We could, we could truly eliminate the, the, the bottleneck of our child welfare system. See, we have to understand that 64% of all children that are in foster care are there from, because of the word neglect neglect. So, so the fact is, is that kids are not coming in the system because they're being beaten. It's not, the numbers are not that high. It's the neglect part. To me, that word neglect is so hard because the, what you feel neglect is and what I feel neglect is something totally different. 
And I feel that we have lost what our community is supposed to be about, and especially our faith base, that we should be there. So for that mother that is having a hard time, um, we need to be there. We need to foster her. We need to foster the family. We need to realize that ripping a family apart is not the answer. It is not the answer. But what you hit the nail on the head, if just our churches were to step up and do what they were put here for, and by the way, I'm a true believer that, that Jesus was an amazing human, just like Nelson Mandela, just like Gandhi, just like Mother Teresa. They loved their community, and they were here because the reason they should be. And that's what we have to do. And you're right about that. Churches have to step up, Nick. Yeah, they absolutely do. It's so frustrating living in a, um, and I don't even know where you are politically, but you know, just living in a country that talks so much about, you know, kind of the ruling party right now, just just talks about pro-life all the time, pro-life, pro-life, pro-life. And what they really mean is one thing, and they don't even really mean that, If but that's a whole different conversation. What they really mean is we're anti-abortion, but they don't mean pro-life because we're seeing so many policies, we're seeing so many laws, we're seeing so many structures and systems. We, you briefly talked about the prison system and this, this for-profit pris, prison industry that we've built in this country that preys on people that are disadvantaged in a variety of ways. Most people in our prison system, and by most, I mean, we could virtually eradicate our prison system right now because there aren't that many actual criminals in there. There are people that were wrong place, wrong time. There are people that were taken advantage of. There are people in there that did not have a proper go at life. Like if you ended up being, you know, you talked about, you know, needle in your arm in Baltimore city. Like if there are a million reasons why you should be, if you look at the, the disadvantaged system that we, are, we have right now, for all intents and purposes, you could and should be in prison by the path you were going down, right? Because yeah. all, all of those things, and that's, that's a horrible system that there are so many people like that have your story or something similar that are in prison now, not because they deserve to be there. I'm not saying they didn't do anything wrong, but it's not about the wrong. It's not about the thing that they did. It should be about, are we truly pro-life? Are we truly taking care? Are we truly holistically pro-life? And that we're going we're gonna to see Rob, not for what he's done, but for who he is and for the things that have happened to him. And how can we help Rob? How can we help Rob and the other hundreds of thousands of kids that grew up in this system to make sure they don't look at our police budgets, look at our prison budgets in this country. We love to prey on people that have done things wrong without taking the, you want to know why? It takes more work to say, instead of just like locking you up and putting you in prison for something you did, it takes a lot more work to say, how do we get here, Rob? Yeah. How do no, we get I, here? I totally agree. I, I totally agree with you hundred percent on that. And you know, I, I say this quite often and, and people just, they, they don't seem to understand. These kids are in a system because of a choice that someone else made. Yep. And, and, and the, the fact is, is that we spend billions, billions, the B word in child welfare, seriously. Last year, we did over $3 billion we spent. What a fail we've done for these children. And especially when you look at the number. So this year in 2020, they, they estimate that about 28,000 children are going to age out of the system. Within two years of those kids aging out, 70, 70% of them will have experienced homelessness. One out of five will experience homelessness the day they age out. 
explain to me what we the hell we've done for these kids. So we take them, we take them and say, oh, we're going to protect you. We take you from your neglectful parents. And then we put you in a shitty ass system. And then the next thing you know, you turn 19, 18 in some states, 20 in some other states, because no state talks and no state does the same. And then we just throw them to the wayside. I, I, I talk about this quite often, is that we have two things that we must do immediately for children in our system. Number one, set them up for financial success. Set them up for financial success. If you're able to pay a foster parent, and by the way, in my state, they get a little over $1,000 a month. $1,000 a month. If you're able to give that kind of money, then why can't you take a bit of that money and put it in an interest-bearing savings account for these kids for when they age out? And by the way, I'm not saying write them a check when they turn 19. Give them a net. Give them a net. See, I know my son, Alex, has his parents now. And so if he has a flat tire and needs to get a new tire, he can call his dad if he doesn't have the money. These kids have no one. Number two, open up the education pathways open up the education education pathways. And I don't mean just pay for their tuition. They need complete wraparound services. We need to make sure that these kids are supported through their journey, their journey. And by the way, these kids aren't mine. They're not yours. They're ours. They're our kids. And if we don't do something today, our tax dollars will do it tomorrow because we'll just put them in a penitentiary. You know? Yeah, that's so sad, but so, so true. That we are, we are. I mean, if you look at if you look at the daily cost of keeping one one person, one human in our prison system, it's it's ridiculous and astronomical. But again, so many people, you know, the powers that be don't want to get rid of that because again, we've made it a for profit industry. The very first for profit prison in the United States is here in my current state, I won't say my home state because we don't like it here, but here in t- Tennessee, first for-profit uh, prison was here in Tennessee. And it's ridiculous that we've made, we've commodified human beings that need, you know, one of the, so much of, whether it's the prison system or the police system or, you know, in the foster system, like we, we have no, it doesn't seem like we want to restore and redeem people. We just want to punish people for the things that they do, for the things that they've done, for the things they could do. We don't want to, our whole system should be about, again, because we talk about, I, we're not a Christian nation, like a lot of people, like a lot of Americans want to talk about it. But if we are that nation that is built on these moral, these morals, right? These good morals of love God and love neighbor. If that is true, then what, wouldn't we want to restore and redeem people? Wouldn't we just aim every single day to see as many people restored to good health, mentally, physically, emotionally? Wouldn't we want to get everybody into uh, therapy? Wouldn't we want to get everybody into these, just a system where their good is what is the ultimate goal, like them being, them thriving, them finding success. And instead it just seems like overall, I mean, I'm just so, I'm so excited and encouraged by your story and what you all are doing in the foster care system. But it's also so discouraging that that number isn't going to move. Yeah. Despite all the work that you're doing, despite all of the advocacy that you and race and your, your organization is doing, it's not going to move. No, because for every kid that 
ages out in a, into a good situation or a horrible situation, and those numbers aren't looking very promising from what you just shared, th that many more kids or more are being pumped into the system. I saw, I saw on on your website, it looked like in 2017 it dipped down, but then it went yep, skyrocketed. It what what was that due to? So, so one thing we have to understand is that we've really have not had a true count of children in our foster care system. So um, I talk about the 4,300, the 4,300 kids who are unaccounted for in the United States that are in foster care. And we call them AWOL children. But the fact is, is that we just have to look at our, at our human trafficking to figure out where these kids are. But again, if this was one of my kids out of my five beautiful babies, I would have their face all over a milk carton if they were missing. And our system, we just write them off. And so we don't have a true number, but we do know that unemployment affects our child welfare system. So right now, my biggest fear is the pandemic. And the reason for that is because, number one, kids in foster care, they've been suffering from the pandemic for years just think about how we woke up in March when the pandemic was sweeping across our country, where we had uncertainty, we felt isolated, we could, kids in foster care feel that every single day, every single day, now you put the pandemic on top of it, okay? Yep. Over 83% of all cases that are reported to child and family service agencies are reported by teachers, teachers, frontline. So all those little kids who aren't in front of a teacher are hiding behind a door with a black eye, are not being fed, are not being watched. And so we know that because of this pandemic, our unemployment rate has increased, which means that we are waiting for the wave. And I've talked to social workers all over the country. We are waiting for the wave of children to start entering the system because that's what we see happens. Unemployment goes and kids come in because of the stress of the family. Um, they're, they're projecting this year that it's about 230,000 children will enter the system. Um, and so, it, like I said, and we haven't really had a true census count on right. kids in the system. So I truly believe that we are probably closer to a 600,000 in the system than we are to the 438,000. I want to talk about something that I think is really important. You talked about, you know, the, the first part of your story was your horrible upbringing, just nightmarish. And... I don't know if you talk, I, I'm trying to think back. I know obviously your dad was incredibly abusive. I think your mom's abuse was more just an abuse of neglect. Like was yeah, it? Mental, it was a lot of mental. Like my father would line us up and he would hold a cold gun to our head and he would click it and he would laugh and say to my mother, Francis, I wonder which one's gonna pee on themselves first. And she would laugh as she smoked her long Salem cigarettes. And so that was a that was mental yeah. um, in so many ways. And in my book, A Forever Family, I go into even more details that people are shocked about. Um, I, my brothers and sisters, by the way, um, have the majority of them have passed away. There is, I do have a, a sister left that I talk to regularly. And when I was writing my book, I would send her parts of the book. And, um, and then I have um, two brothers um, that, you know, one's been in and out of prison his whole life. The other one, chooses to be homeless. And I said, chooses to be homeless because he did, he is making a choice about that right now. Um, and then I had two siblings that my mother gave up for adoption. One of them when she, they were six months and the other when they were 18 months because she owed a debt. Um, she was that type of person. And finally, my older sister, she just found them. 
I haven't had that kumbaya moment with them, by the way, and I don't think I ever will, mm-hmm. um, just because of the way my life has, has you know, started. And um, I, I respect them. And, and, you know, as I said to my sister, who I'm very close to, by the way, she's been in and out of every psychiatric hospital there is because she cannot forgive. See, people always ask me all the time, how did I get to where I'm at today? How did I get there? How did I have the grit inside of me to be here and not be like one of my siblings or like so many of the other statistics? And Nick, I will tell you that it all is because of forgiveness. Forgiveness. See, as I told you about being in rehab and when I got out, the first thing I did was visit my mother's grave. Hadn't been in my mother's grave since I was 12 years old. I found her grave. I had to go to the little funeral parlor and find out exactly where she was. She had a little piece of silver on there with a number. She made a headstone. Mm. I remember dropping to my knees and telling her that I forgive her, that I forgive her and I forgive my father for all the years of abuse, for all the hell that I went through. But I wanted her to know that I was not forgiving her to set her free. I was forgiving her to set me free. Yeah, yeah. I realized that forgiveness at that moment was giving you the power, giving you, it was bringing the power back to you. And I said that to my sister just recently because she seems not to be able to get over what happened as a child. And I said to her, I don't ever expect you to get over it. Mm -mm. But the moment that you forgive will be the moment that you can set yourself free. And that's what happened with me. It was all about forgiveness. So yeah, childhood sucked. <laughs> That's an under, the understatement of the year. That's such an important lesson though, Rob. And I'll get to what I was, was aiming at in just a second. But this idea of forgiveness, not for her sake, because obviously she's dead and gone. Like you speaking words into the air uh, is never going to, well, I mean, I don't, know, I don't know what happens in the other world. Like maybe it does reach her, but it was more for you. It was for you to be able to be released. And what I, what I love so much about, your story is you you went again you're very intuitive you went right where i was going to go which was i was going to ask about your siblings right where are they i have some of them overcome because here's the deal you have at least you have we don't have time to to go into the details of all of your siblings you just kind of gave us an overview there but the reality is you have broken uh for lack of a better term a generational curse yeah i don't know how much you know about your mom and dad's parents and their parents and their parents. But I do know that hurt people hurt people. I do know that people that have been hurt, if they don't deal with that shit, they end up hurting other people. And so I can imagine, again, in previous generations, there was this ongoing cycle of, I'm going to hurt you. And then the recipient of that hurt says, I'm going to hurt you. And then they, it just kind of passes it along. And even of the overview of some of your siblings, it seems like some of them have succumbed to that in different areas. They've not truly let go of that. They haven't, whether physically stood at your mother's graveyard, gravestone uh, and said, I forgive you for me. They haven't done that work, which has now freed you up. I mean, look at what you've been able to do. Again, you're, you're breaking the name of your memoir, Forever Family. Like you're breaking this generational cycle and essentially, it's a big fuck you to the past generations of herders, of people that hurt for a living, because that's what your parents did. Um, and so I love, I just wanted to point that out and say, like, again, some of it is, a lot of it's 
it's God, it's life, it's Reese, it's your kids. Like it's a whole, but, and it's also your grit. It's also you continuing to move forward despite all the people along the way showing you or saying to you, you're not enough, you're not worth it. You know, for, you know, nobody clapping at your graduation, all those things that happened, you were able to keep pushing forward. But I think there's a, there's a beautiful thing. There's a beautiful hand of, of providence on your life that is, continuing to move you forward despite, again, you have every reason to not make it in life. You have every reason to not be experiencing the success that you are experiencing. And success, again, this, the metrics have changed. Not the big house, not the big car, not taking everybody to Disney World. It is now totally different. It's community, it's family, and it's your dash, right? It's that legacy. It's that idea of what am I gonna do from here to here? Um, so I, I'm proud of you. I don't know you that well. You. I'm proud Thank of you. you. I really am. Like there's, there's so many, I, I love seeing, you know, you, you said it yourself. Now you're, you're living in a place of privilege, right? Yeah. But it didn't start out that way. It didn't start yeah. out that way. You were again, every disadvantage and you were able to get to the place where you were experiencing privilege. You were able to recognize that, which is where most people, what most people fail to do. They fail to recognize any privilege they have and then bless people out of that. Right. Um, you're raising four black kids in America. Yeah, yeah. My oldest son is white and my my other four this is children, Alex, right? Yep, my oldest yep. son Alex is white and my other four children, Grayson, Makai, Tristan and Amaya are all black. And I know you, you talk about life-changing. Life-changing hmm. because they have taught me. They have taught me. See, when I go walk into Nordstroms with my beautiful brown boy Makai or my beautiful black boy Grayson mm. who's just gorgeous who by the way is 13 and looks 16 um Nordstrom's looks at me and wants to know what my credit score is they look at him and want to know what he's going to fill his pockets with mm. before they even get to know him before they even get to know him. And by the way, I have seen that happen. I have seen people walk up to me and say to my husband and I, oh my gosh, your family is so beautiful. We don't see any color. And I look at them and say, then you do not see my children. Hell yeah. You cannot acknowledge the fact that our skin color is different. And that we as white privileged people for so many years have lived on our white privileged lives we must understand that, and, and I get upset when people say, well, all lives matter. That's not what we're saying. If we do not say that black lives matter, then none of us matter. And we have lived through that. So yeah, raising four children to, to understand that, you know, I tell them all the time, I can't teach them how to be white. I can't teach them how to be black. I can't teach them even how to be gay. But what I can teach them is how to be good humans, mm. good humans, because at the end of the day, that's what I want my legacy to be yeah. is that I have raised with my husband, five of the most amazing humans we could put on our face of this earth, but raising children of color in this day of age, I, I fear, I fear for my kids, you know, and that's sad as a dad. Have you can imagine having that conversation with your children? You know, number one, don't put your hands in your pocket. Mm. Number two, get the hoodie off your head. Number three, don't wear a do-rag. Number four, if a police pulls daddy over, put your hands on the dash immediately. White parents are not having that conversation with their white children. Nope. But I have to have it with my children 
Because if that's the society we live in, and we must acknowledge it, we have to acknowledge that that's happening. If we don't acknowledge, it's the whole thing I told you about education. You don't educate our, our community about foster care, they're never going to see change. If we don't educate our, our community about how, why Black Lives Matter, then we're never going to see change. But I truly do believe that in my life, I'm going to see more change than I've ever seen before. First of all, as a gay man, I never once thought that I could ever get married. And look at me now, I'm legal married yeah. for you know and we were the 20th couple to be married in the district of columbia when they legalized it and we had all the babies attached to us during that time number two i never thought i would be a dad and being gay and look at me now i'm a dad to five beautiful kids so change is coming i want to be a part of that change and i want people to be a part of that change and how do we start doing what you and i are doing today nick doing yeah. what you and i do today talking yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I, I, I will. I don't know how much global travel you've done, but I've spent about half my life living overseas for a variety of reasons. And one of the things I struggle with, and I, I've landed squarely where you, what you, where you just described, but the struggle has been there. And the struggle is, you know, recently there was a study, a very well-vetted, well-researched study on the top 35 countries to raise families in. The United States of America was 34 behind Mexico. The top 10 countries were all, uh, save one, was were in Europe. And um, one of the struggles I've had is, is and I don't even, I don't, I'm not raising black kids. I'm raising, you know, I'm the son of a, I'm the son of an immigrant, and so my kids have, you know, they're they're uh, Latin Italian kids, but they're white. I mean, they're very fair skinned, right? So I'm, I don't have to have the same discussions that you have to have with your amazing children, but. As I see all these issues, we talked about the, we talked very briefly about the prison system, the police, Black Lives Matter, you know, the supposed pro-life country that we live in, right? And I have thought so hard so many times about getting the hell out of here. Like yes, in here. There are so many like our happiness level is so low. People don't feel safe here. They're not happy here. They have to work way too much just to scrape by and, and again make a living is very relative. And I just want to leave. I just want to leave sometimes. I just want to start the process and get the hell out of here. But then I talk with people like yourself. I had a conversation with my amazing friends, Shannon Cedric Davis the other day. And we're talking about all of these issues that can be overwhelming. And that, again, part of this, this conversation makes me want to leave. Makes, it makes part of me want to leave and go to a place that does experience more justice and equity for the most amount of people. But, and this is a big but, is those of us that have been tasked with a bigger, greater vision for what could be. I think it's incumbent upon us to stay and do the hard work. Work that's probably gonna outlive us. I think you are right in that we will see some fruit of our labor in our lifetime. But we're not gonna see, I think about the amazing John Lewis, Representative John Lewis that died a few weeks ago. He was a guy who walked with Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. across, you know, the, the mall in Washington, walked across the Evan Pettus Bridge and was beat within an inch of his life. This is 50 years ago. He just died and he, we, still have an we still are not experiencing true equity and justice for people of color in this country. So we have to realize that, again, I, I don't blame anybody for getting the hell out of here and finding a, you know, a more happy life elsewhere. But I think for some of us, we stay, we do the hard work, we put in the long hours, we build the organizations, the systems, we fight and fight and fight just so that we can see by the end of our life, maybe some of this, but our kids, our kids and their kids get to experience the fruits of our labor, right? And you talked a little bit about parenting. I 
grew up in a pretty, I love my parents. There's a lot of changes have happened in their lives since I was a little kid, but I grew up in a, a, a fairly abusive upbringing, mentally, emotionally, physically. And it was because it was all about, they were trying, so much of it was about, you've got to look apart and play a part and you've got to be this amazing person. You've got to, you know, button up and look a certain way and don't say this and say that. And so much of it was around behavior. And our parenting strategy now is not anything like that. You talked about, you can't teach your kids to be black or white or gay or straight or any of that. That's not, that's not our job as parents. Right. My job as a parent of three little kids, five, seven, and eight, growing up in very, you know, very diverse neighborhoods and diverse cities is to point out good things that are happening and say, look at that. What, what do you think of that? Let's talk about that. Point out bad things that are happening and say, look at that. What do you think's happening there? And then talk about it and talk yeah. about it and make them feel loved yeah. and accepted and anything you doubt or question, it's okay. Like, it doesn't matter what you say or what you do. Like, you're still super valuable to me. And that is, the, I, I already, even with young kids, see the benefits of raising children that way versus saying, say this, don't say that, do this, don't do that. Here's how you look. Here's how you talk. Here's what'll make you a great person. That's, that's not the role of a parent. And so I think we've got, um, some work cut out for us, you and me, with our with our own children, our own homes and communities, but also out there in the world. I'm I'm just super excited that you. It seems like you're committed to this for oh, the, yeah. the long haul. Yeah. Staying here in this place that is pretty fucked up, but that again we can see glimmers. I see it. I mean, right now this we're seeing a a kind of revived civil rights movement right now. You know, I, I, I said to one of my fr friends the other day, who's black and who is older and more mature. And I said, do you think this is a new civil rights movement happening right now? Because it's so big and it's so different than even like, you know, after Mike Brown died or after Trayvon Martin died, it's so different now. It's big. There's still rot. There's still protests and, you know, things happening around the country. And he said, he said, no, no, it's not a new one. It never stopped. Never stopped. Never stopped. This is just a continuation and sure there's a swell right now, but it might mellow out. People might be like, well, that's over with now on to the next thing. And so I just think we have uh, a ton of uh, good work to do. And yeah, I agree with you. And I want to be a part of that. Yeah. And I, I want that to be, a, you know, I want my children's future to be brighter than mine was. And I want their children's future to be brighter than they their future is. So, and I believe that, you know, people like John Lewis or Martin Luther King would have walked away. Where would we be today? You know, and even though that that needle was yep. pushed very a small way, it still was pushed. And I think that if we each do our part and continue to push that needle, there will be a day. And I know it won't be in my lifetime, yeah. but there will be a day that we will sit back and people will be looked at and be judged by what they do and not by the color of their skin. Yeah. And that to me is so important, you know, especially when you look at kids in foster care. I mean, I'm going to tell you right now, people do not realize the, the, the racial injustice of children who are of color that are in foster care, you know, and, and as, as we're finishing this up, I want to tell yeah. you a quick story. There was a, there's a, a, a viral story that came out, um, not long ago, um, several months ago that about the woman who had the baby in Ohio and she didn't have any formula. And at 2 a.m. in the morning, she called 911 to have for a formula because she was crying. The baby was crying. She didn't have any money. She didn't have anybody to call. She had three other children at home, young mother. 
And um, 911 officer called the police. Police went to the house and brought her formula. And it was a feel-good story. And everybody was like, oh, my gosh, this is what we should be doing. I researched that story, by the way, Nick, to let you know that that was a white woman. And I will tell you right now, if that same exact thing happened in Harlem, if it happened in the south side of Chicago, it happened in Compton, I will tell you, and that mother was black, her children would have been taken. They would have been taken because of the word neglect, you know, but instead we praise this white woman, which by the way, we did exactly what we should do, which I I don't have any problem with thousand percent, you know, but what I have a problem with is there's such a difference on how we treat people of color compared to the way. So this white woman is praised and the same thing happens in Harlem. And that mother is, she cries out for help and we take her children, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's happening every single day in our system. Yeah. Yeah, it's tragic and we we have a lot of work to do. So as we as we wrap up today, I want to name a couple things that you've been involved in and then I want to ask you as kind of the last question like what's ahead? Like what are you excited about? So like, you know, you have been um you, you, you've been named a CNN hero. You and Reese were on Ellen. I love that clip. It's very, very touching. The National Council for Adoption presented you last year with the Warren and Mary Alice, I think, Bobineau? Yeah, Bobineau. Bobineau. Yep, Bobineau Award. You've given a TEDx talk. Um, you've done so many things, including this, I think, did it all kind of start with this viral Upworthy video that's been viewed like 100 million times or something yeah, like that. Yeah, it's, you know, it really, it started actually before the viral video. My daughter was in the American Girl magazine. That's right. And, um, and that actually got the ground shaking a little bit. Um, I just gave up my, my career of banking after over 25 years to be a public speaker um, when my book came out. And, um, but yeah, the video definitely, we, we, it's the most viewed, watched, and shared video in Upworthy history. Um, and still, holds that title to this day and it was me sitting on the couch of my living room telling my story yeah one person and it it went viral and i'll never forget my son grayson when i told him that our video was going viral and he said no dad our our video is going to be dropped he was like you're not going to be viral and then like several days later he's like dad we're viral um you know but yeah it's 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 just been amazing you know i just i have a documentary that i did with bryce howard called dads that was based on Father's Day on Apple TV. And I was really, really proud to be a part of that along with so many other amazing dads um, that they actually, you know, highlighted my family and our children. We've done so many other shows. And we did um, Vacations of the Brave on Amazon, um, which was amazing. I'm, I'm right now working on two different shows in the fall um, that depending on COVID, we hope it gets out. Um, but yeah, what is next for me? Um, to continue to do what I'm doing right now, which is yeah. to continue to, I remember when I went to my husband, who, by the way, my husband's now a stay-at-home dad. He's been a stay-at-home dad for the last seven years because we have one son who's special needs. And um, and I remember going to my husband and saying, listen, I'm going to leave my job and I'm going to go promote our book. Um, Simon & Schuster and Derek Jeter published my book and they expected to go on book tours and I, would, I needed to take a leave of absence. And he says, you do know that you, you bring the paycheck home. And I, said, I said, yeah, I do. I said, I haven't failed you yet. And so far I have been away from my, my corporate job for the last two years. And I will tell you, um, I feel amazing because yeah. of that. And so my next 
chapter, you know, and I say this all the time, life is about choices. It truly is. And I want to make the right choices. And so what I want to do more than anything is just truly start seeing change within our system when it comes to kids aging out of foster care. Um, I think that we have to, we have to do something about this. It's, 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 it's definitely a pandemic when it comes to kids aging out of foster care, we've got to do something. So yeah, you know, just, you know, follow me on social media and we'll see what the hell is going to happen. I'm excited. Yeah, well, I'll I'll link to all the important things that you've done so people can watch those and read those. I'll link to your book, your memoir that people need to read. Um, and yeah, I'll, sh- I'll share your socials and all that. I want people to not just hear this conversation, but also just get on board with what you and uh, Comfort Cases are doing so they can learn more and donate and get involved. This is, a, this is an incredibly worthy cause, folks. So please, please, please uh, get involved. Rob, you're amazing. Thanks so much for joining us today. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll have to do it again because there's so much more to dive into. But. Yes, yes, we definitely, there were so many other things we yeah. could talk about. So yeah, I would left, definitely love to do this again, my friend. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. Take care, buddy. That's the show today, friends. A massive, massive, massive thanks to my friend Rob Shear for joining me on the show today. I'm so inspired by him. And I hope that you have been inspired also. May that inspiration that you're feeling right now turn into action today. And thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. It means the world to me. You can find links and more details about this show by visiting letsgiveadam.fm. That is the new home for now for all things Let's Give a Damn. Letsgiveadam.fm. You can find show notes. You can find all the other shows. You can subscribe to our newsletter there. Everything lives at letsgiveadam.fm. I created this show. Chad Snavely produced it. Let's Give a Damn is part of the Matter Media family. We're so grateful for their partnership. You can reach out anytime. Hello at letsgiveadam.com. I am sending so much love and peace and light to each one of you as much as I can muster. Please stay safe. Please keep giving a damn. Bye for now.